The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hey there, Delano. How you doing? Hey, Glenn. Good to, good to see you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned in to The Glenn Show. Glenn Show at Substack.com and at YouTube. I'm Glenn Lowry, professor uh, at Brown University, and I'm also uh, a John Paulson Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City. Uh, the Manhattan Institute sponsors uh, The Glenn Show, and my guest uh, in conversation this week um, is my friend Delano Squires, my friend and colleague. Uh, Delano is, what do you say you are now, a research fellow at the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. Correct. He, he writes, a contributor at the, the newsletter uh, The Blaze, that's uh, Jason Whitlock's uh, vehicle. Um, and he is a, a member of the Scholars Network, which I am also a member of, of the Woodson Center. That's the Woodson Center in Washington, D.C., which promotes and supports uh, grassroots efforts in disadvantaged communities, including communities of color mm -hmm. throughout the country, to uh, be able to empower them to make their lives better. That's Robert Woodson. Uh, we're proud to work with him. So, yes, uh, Delano, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank you for having me. It's an honor, Glenn. It's You're an honor. welcome. Yeah, I was so impressed with the comments that you made during our last Scholars Network phone call where we got to talking about, well, what did we get to talking about? We got to talking <laughs> about race and culture mm -hmm. and values and um, and moral themes. I mean, you are a homeschooling father. Uh, you are a professing Christian believer and leader. Uh, you are, I think I can fairly say, a cultural conservative in terms of your value orientation and your political orientation. And you're black. <laughs> you know, that's an interesting combination, man. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot more people like you and I than people realize. Um, I mean, I, I get my values from my family, my family upbringing. I was raised, I grew up in New York City to parents who came to this country late 70s, early 80s from the West Indies. And um, even though no one in my family would call themselves a Republican or conservative, we had conservative values, right? We, we grew up in the church, we were in church basically every week um, since I was a, a young boy. Um, all of our, me and my three best friends, all of our parents have been married for over 40 years. Um, and we were just raised and trained in a particular way. All of our fathers worked, most of them worked with their hands. So I grew up around carpenters, electricians, plumbers, masons, and even the men who had, um, white collar jobs, all of them were in the business of creating. Um, my dad has a kitchen garden, even though he lives in Queens and 80% of the backyard is concrete. Um, yeah. and, and, <laughs> And it's not lost on me that all of these men were creators. 
Um, so either they work with their hands to, to plant, um, to sow seeds and, and reap a harvest, or they work to build things. Um, and as I said, it's, it's not lost on me that you fast forward a generation or two and, and some of the sons in my generation and, and certainly grandsons in the next generation um, have taken on the language of destruction. Everything is about dismantling, uh, deconstructing, destroying. Um, and so, so I can't come to where I come to just based on, on how I was raised. And, um, I look around and I see other people have other explanations for why things work in the world the way they do. And as a, and as a Christian, as a believer, I, I open my Bible, um, and I see that the explanations in the scripture, um, tend to shine a lot more light on the world as I see it and as it is than what other people are saying. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all the things that you mentioned. Um, I, I got my start writing in terms of public commentary, writing for a site called Black and Married with Kids that was created by a couple dedicated to providing more positive images of, of black families and marriage and relationships. I actually met my wife at their third documentary screening. Um, so I, I come to the world of sort of cultural commentary and particularly within the framework of a, of a Christian conservative um, with, at least from my perspective, you know, rock solid sort of cultural bona fides. All right. So you can't, and, and Glenn, you notice that what people try to do is they'll look for anything, they'll nitpick and they'll say, okay, what's his wife look like? Is, if, he's, if he's a conservative, if he's a Republican, that's okay. Is he married to a black woman? Okay, did he, does he live in a particular place? How does, how does he speak? How does he carry himself? And my goal is to make it so that people actually have to answer my arguments. I don't want to let them get a, an easy way out from having, you know, or allow them to, to run around the things that I'm saying when I talk about the importance of, of marriage and family, um, you know, and, and issues like that. Um, so, yeah, so I, I'm all the things that you said and more homeschool dad of, of four children, uh, married 10 years, um, you know, member of good standing at Temple Hills Baptist Church. And, um, you know, just waiting to see what, what else God has in store. What else God has in store? I used to talk like that when I was a Christian, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a long story. I'm writing a memoir. I'll tell the story and we could talk about it on another occasion. I don't want to talk about my day, but I, but I do want to talk about culture, politics, and race in America. And, mm -hmm. and about the voice uh, that uh, you are uh, articulating now about faith and the central role of it in grappling with the challenges that confront uh, low-income African-American communities. And I can't help but remark, you're at the Heritage Foundation, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we're, we're speaking here just, uh, it, it's the 18th of January, and uh, King Day was the 16th of January this year. Martin Luther King Jr., you know, honoring Dr. King, remembering Dr. King, uh, celebration of African-American struggle and triumph at the center of the American story and whatnot, and King a Baptist uh, minister, Ebenezer 
right there in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about Raphael Warnock, mm. <laughs> who got elected and who is the senator from Georgia, one of the two, and is in that pulpit. Mm-hmm. Raphael Warnock is right at the center of the Democratic Party's progressive political thrust. Um, he is uh, in the Senate in substantial part. I think we can't avoid thinking so because he had the support of black people, many black people at the polls. Uh, he's a he's a minister. What am I getting at here? From King to Warnock, mm. from Warnock to Squires. Uh, you know, <laughs> somehow, somehow, y'all are not singing from the same hymnal. No, no, and, no. And I just, I'm inviting your reflection on, you know, because you're in a particular location in mm-hmm. terms of your philosophical and your religious and your political commitments, and uh, you know, uh, the the community may or may not be with you. Uh, certainly the leadership, the political leadership of the community would appear not to be with you, if, if, if I may say so. And I'm just wondering how, you know, give me an opportunity yeah. to react to that. I mean, I, I think you raise a number of, of great points. And, and um, I do a fair amount of writing on um, the differences between the, the values, the lived and expressed values among sort of the broad masses in the black community. And obviously there's not just one group of people, right? I grew up in New York, my wife is from Houston. Her, her you know, family comes from Mississippi and Louisiana, the folks in the Midwest. And so, I mean, there's, there's all different types um, of ways that black lives are lived in this country, certainly throughout, throughout history. Uh, but one thing I will say, and I, and I agree with you, that uh, Raphael Warnock, and I do think it's very important to to highlight that he he occupies the same pulpit as Dr. King. There's some things that we could could sort of look backwards in retrospection to talk, and particularly in terms of King's theology. But I, I won't get into that right now. But I would say, generally speaking, at, at this point in time, the the Afristocracy, and that's what I call them, um, the five P's of the Afristocracy. The politicians, the pundits, the professors, the performers, and the preachers um, have taken a lot of things from black history. They draw on it whenever they want to to get a political win. They'll call laws that they don't like, you know, Jim Eagle, the new Jim Crow, uh, James Crow Esquire. The one thing that they have not drawn forward, I would I would argue, is the faith that got many. Uh, black Americans in this country throughout history through those difficult times. Um, so Raphael Warnock describes himself as a pastor. Um, I, I don't believe he's believed some of the sort of core tenets of Orthodox biblical Christianity, but I do know he is at the front lines of efforts to turn rainbow into the new black. And when I say that, what I mean specifically is um, the LGBT agenda has displaced whatever people thought of as the black agenda in terms of the new priority of the Democratic Party. Um, so, And that's expressed in... I, I'll give you some quick examples. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold okay. on. Okay, okay. I, I definitely want to hear those examples. Okay. But I, I just got to, you know, so much ground is being covered, I need to somehow... Now, aphrotocracy, now that's a good one, Okay. <laughs> 
Prof oh, wait a minute, hold on. Uh, politicians, pundits, professors, performers, and preachers. I think I got the five Correct. P's on that. Correct. Man. You got the five P's. And I, you know, I see LeBron James. You know, mm -hmm. I see him. He's, I, I, I just see him as there's a part of the performers. You know, whatnot. Mm -hmm. I see Raphael Warnock, and I see mm -hmm. many others. Uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the preacher category, I got my Michael Eric Dyson and, mm -hmm. and my Charles Blow in the pundit category and, and professor category. And mm -hmm. Lord knows I know the professor category very, very well. Mm -hmm. So these are professional black people. They speak, quote unquote, for the race. They got their fists balled up. They right. are inveighing against white supremacy, etc. And you just accuse them of hijacking the the sacred historical legacy of black struggle in this country and appropriating it on behalf of a new age postmodern anti-christian agenda correct i i don't mean to put words in your mouth but that's exactly what i heard you say that is exactly what i said actually i i, I have no problem saying that i've written about it on on multiple occasions and multiple platforms um Again, it, it uh, some tangible examples, right. and I'm not I'm not saying social media is the end all be all, but um, I think back a couple months when I saw you know Stacey Abrams camp campaigning in Georgia to be governor, and you know she was trotting out a few events talking about black men, and I just did some simple word searches on her Twitter feed, black men, everything was tied to her campaign. I did marriage, all of those um, results were quote unquote marriage equality, right? So that's so-called same-sex marriage. Uh, when I did Pride, I had dozens of entries. Abortion, dozens of entries. The same thing for the NAACP. If you if you type in marriage or, or marriage in the NAACP's Twitter feed, the responses, the results will likely be tied to what they call marriage equality. They'll have dozens of tweets about abortion, not a single one on the nuclear family. Same thing with the National Urban League. In fact, the Urban League, I think it was might have been two months ago, um, sent out a statement that the Urban League, the NAACP, National Action Network, is partnering with Planned Parenthood, NARAL, and a number of other abortion um, you know, organizations to, to demand a meeting at the White House to talk about expanding abortion access, particularly for low-income black women. Um, and all of these things point to a different set of priorities for the left. And, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you another one that really sort of puts a fine point on this. Uh, I was listening to, and, and I'm, a, I'm a big believer in naming names, Glenn. Okay, so if you don't mind, there are going to be some people's names that come up today because I believe that um, the heavier the charge, the heavier the evidence. And I'm a person that if, if you're dealing with, you know, uh, delicate topics, I don't want to go scatter shot if I'm trying to hit one guy. So I was watching Roland Martin's show after Texas passed a law to ban abortion after six weeks. And he had on a professor who drew a parallel between Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, and um, enslaved Africans who were fleeing um, captivity on the Underground Railroad in search of freedom he drew a parallel between those people and the women who would leave Texas to go to quote unquote civilized states to try to procure abortions. 
And that person was uh, Dr. Greg Carr, Gregory Carr, who's at Howard University. Uh, I want to say he's the he's a professor in the Africana Studies Department. Um, this is this is what the Afristocracy pursues with all of its strength, passion, and vigor. When they show up to the black community, they are much more likely to be promoting abortion than they are to be talking about the benefits of marriage and the nuclear family. The last Democrat, prominent national Democrat who I could think who I can think of who did that on a regular basis was, as you know, President Obama. And whenever he did it, the people who criticized him would always be on his political left. And I think since then, um, Democrats have gotten the message. And that's why when you roll forward to the 2020 uh, uh, agenda, you know, sort of the party platform, the only references to marriage were related to arranged marriages in foreign countries. Um, so we, we have two parties who have a completely different perspective on the importance of marriage as a as sort of the bedrock. I, I would argue that the bedrock of, of civil society, um, the importance of family, um, and the importance of ensuring that the, the responsibility for taking care of women and children rests in the right place. I would argue the right sees the rightful place to be within the home, and particularly um, men being responsible for the for the children that they create. And I would argue that the left, um, its vision of patriarchy is a more bureaucratic stripe. So it thinks that Uncle Sam is a suitable husband and father for millions of children in this country. And I I disagree with that position. Okay, I gotta, I gotta interrupt both to give a disclaimer because I think the audience needs to know something about me and then also to give a devil's advocate. Okay, so I'm a devil's advocate, you bro. Okay. The disclaimer is I'm a father of five. I have three children in their 50s, two in their 30s. Uh, my son, Glenn, who's in his 30s, is a gay man. He lives with his partner, Rob, in Brockton, Massachusetts. They've been together for over a decade. Um, my daughter, Tamara, is a diversity officer for NARAL, Delano. Okay. She is a lawyer who has built a career in that sector of the law in terms of diversity and inclusion stuff. She was the chief diversity person for the Democratic National Committee before she went to NARAL. My son Alden is a journalist in Chicago. He's an editor at the public radio station there, WBEZ, and he covers opportunity issues and diversity in neighborhoods around Chicago. And let me just say that he's a man of the left. Any one of these people might hear this podcast, and if I didn't tell the world about them, they would be pissed that they that Poppy. They call me Poppy. I'm Grandpa. I'm you know in my seventies or whatever, whatever. But let me just say, I'm in my seventies, and I have a lot of sympathy for what for what you just said. But I needed to issue that disclaimer. Now let me disclaimer. Now let me do the devil's advocate thing. Sure. The reason that what you said is true, aphrodisiacy, which are <laughs> politicians <laughs> pundits pundits professors performers Pre and, and preachers, preachers. Mm -hmm. uh, are so uniformly on the left so uniformly democrats so uniformly uh pushing a intersectionality uh agenda is because they as much this is what the devil's advocate would say they just as Martin Luther King himself Jr. would have done if he had lived long enough, have seen the connection between 
African-American civil rights and human rights. They're drawing a straight line from uh, Selma to Stonewall. Mm. They're saying, whereas Loving versus Virginia was about interracial marriage, the marriage equality movement is about people being able to marry who they love. That's a, that's a human right. They're saying that the autonomy of the woman to be liberated from an impose, impose, imposition by society of her having to carry a pregnancy to term that she doesn't want is an extension of the uh, claim for liberty and freedom that people who had been enslaved or pressed into uh, involuntary servitude of one kind or another, indentured, uh, uh, would have also uh, been advocating for. We've grown up, they're going to say. We started with the parochial claims of our race within the context of America's Jim Crow, and we have, in the 21st century, extended that sense of uh, humanity and decency beyond the confines of our race. What's wrong with you people, excuse me, but I'm just being the devil's advocate, who can't see beyond the end of your racial noses and who don't understand that the freedom struggle of black people and the freedom struggle of women and the freedom struggle of gay people, this is Cornell West preaching mm -hmm. to you, brother. He's a Christian. Last time I checked, he was a Christian who had a very different interpretation of black Americans' historical experience than the one that you've just offered. And I really appreciate you responding to that. Sure. Um, I, I, I take those points, and, I, and I've heard them all before. But here, here's, here's part of my response. I'm going to plant one particular flag, and I'm going to come back to it. It's a very simple you know, phrase that I use to keep me sort of focused in the moment, and it's this. The designer is the definer. Right. I'll just a quick, quick tangent just to, to press this point home. I've, I've heard you talk on a number of occasions about, um, you know, the, the concept around social capital. Right. And I know that, that you have unpacked that over the course of decades. Every time someone cites Glenn Lowry to talk about social capital and they weave that into their work, they are bringing um, not just attention, but but honor and in a certain sense, a sense of glory to your work. This was the work that came from your mind. You are the author of it. You defined its terms. You said its concepts. And if that person came back and said, well, I know Glenn Lowry says that uh, social capital involves X, Y and Z, but I'm going to change the definitions of social and capital so that I can use it for my own purposes. And I'm but I'm going to call it the same thing. You would say, um, excuse me, sir, you didn't make that. I did. You don't get to define it, redefine it. I do. And in the same sense, when I think about uh, my biblical worldview and the application of that to issues of political or social import, it's not just for um, the purpose of moral understanding. It's for the purpose of order. I, don't be I believe that this world was one that was created and as such, again, the designer is the is the definer. So, so when I think about what marriage is, its definition, I go to Genesis, right, two twenty four, one man, one woman, for one lifetime and one covenant union dedicated to one another, and the, and the fruit that they bear from that union. When I think about the issue of life, go to 
and uh, biological sex, you know. So the 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 this this speaks to the issues around gender ideology. I go to Genesis one one twenty seven. God created male and female, just two, two sexes, not sixty four, not fifty five, just two. Um, so those things anchor me as I, you know, look out into the world. Um, so, so I understand people say, well, we don't agree with you. And I say, okay, that's fine. But what I also realize is that oftentimes they don't agree with themselves because the same people who in one breath will say, well, not only women can get pregnant, right? There's pregnant people and people with the capacity for pregnancy. And they'll say, well, yes, men can get pregnant until you start talking about abortion rights. And then everybody goes back to, well, this is a woman's issue, right? The same people who say, oh, there's more than two genders. Okay, well, you ask them how many there are. No one can give you a, a, a consistent definition on, you know, from day to day. So my, my position and my, my broad response is I don't get to redefine terms that I did not create. And part of the reason I, I don't do that is because as a Christian, I'm not a thief. And I don't believe in robbing God of the glory that comes from acknowledging and appreciating his creation as he created it. And ultimately, um, I, I think th th that worldview has been helpful for me because now we're, we're, we're in the end game, right? We're, we, we are <laughs> arguing, we are literally in the West arguing about whether men can get pregnant. It doesn't get much more fundamental yeah, no. than that. And if we can't get our thinking straight around these issues, um, all of our future thoughts and words will be in Mandarin or some other foreign language because someone is going to come in and conquer this land. Um, so, uh, okay. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. Go ahead. That, 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 that. No, I, so I, I just, I, so let, let me, I'll, I'll just put a, a um, bring this, this thought to a close. So I, I understand people have different political beliefs, right? Um, and, and my beliefs are not ones that are primarily shaped by race. I am a black man, of course. Um, and, and I, I appreciate that. I, I love the diversity of God's creation, but ultimately the question is like, did we create ourselves? And if so, then we can redefine things. But I would argue that many of the issues that we see, the, um, the ones around, you know, depression and anxiety, uh, uh listlessness and hopelessness and all of the, the, the social maladies, many of those come from people who have grown weary of trying to fight the natural order. Um, they think that they know that they can control their lives, right? But then they get to a particular point and you say, okay, oh, this is, this is not working for me. I, I told myself I didn't want to have, you know, a husband and children. I didn't want a family. But now I'm 45 and I'm rushing to try to use medical technology in a way to fulfill yeah. that desire. So that, so as I said, the, the designer is a definer. Um, and, and I think it's important to, to adhere to that principle. Well, okay. Duly noted. Artfully expressed. For what it's worth, I am not without sympathy. Me, personally, mm -hmm. Glenn Lowry. But you said we, you said the hour is late and we, we are in trouble. We are sliding down into a dark place. So that we is a collective statement. That's a statement about 
a political community. We Americans, because we're going to be making policy. There's going to be issues of law. Somebody's got to decide what the law is, what people can and cannot do, whether it's about abortion or it's about marriage or it's, it's whatever it's about. Now, not everybody will ascribe to the foundational beliefs that you just articulated. Not everybody thinks there's a God. And those who think there's a God, some of them think God is different from the God that you think. Not everybody reads that great book, the Bible, Old Testament and New. Not everybody does. And some who do read it differently than the way that you read it. We have to have a framework where, notwithstanding the fact that we don't all sign off on the same religious beliefs, we nevertheless can accommodate our mutuality and our, and our living together under law. I'm sure you don't want to simply impose your beliefs on other people. So we have a constitution, we have a framework, we have, you know, a bill of rights, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's fine for you in your private life to decide not to abort a pregnancy, to decide to homeschool your children, to decide to deny the uh, legitimacy of gay marriage, or whatever, but when you act through law to impose that on other people, it becomes a different story altogether. Mm. So how do you justify the imposition of your beliefs, which would be required if, for example, the court were to strike down, uh, uh, what's Oberg the case, uh, Obergefell, mm -hmm. whatever, um, if, if the court has done, as it has done, it's stricken Roe versus Wade. Again, I'm not expressing my personal opinion here. Um, but these are impositions, these are consequential acts of the state that uh, infringe upon individuals. And to justify those acts by reference to a sectarian religious perspective uh, raises a lot of questions. It, it, you know, it, 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 it almost has a tyrannical <laughs> ring to it. it. It's something that's not liberal in the small L sense of freedom of persons, of conscience, and all of that. Again, no establishment of religion. That's one of the First Amendment dictates, et cetera, et cetera. So I think I've said enough for you to get yeah. the idea of what I'm, what I'm trying to get you to talk I mean, about it's a, here. it's a common response, but the way I would respond is that um, every law and policy is inherently moral someone's belief system is always going to be imposed and inscribed on our laws. And certainly someone's belief system is going to be imposed on the public square. Um, I'm just clear about what it is that I believe and why it is that I believe it. But the, the, the same people um, who may say, who may argue, let's say for same sex marriage today, right? And they say, yes, we believe in marriage equality, like the, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act that just was passed recently. Um, there was a provision in there that, that, that talked about marriages between two people, but why, why can't it be, be between three? <laughs> Who gets to set the terms of, of, of where the movement stops? And what I'm saying is, um, everyone has their, their own belief systems. And, and part of what I said before is that oftentimes, and, and you can tell when people are just making it up as they go along, they may not think so, but. When Planned Parenthood sends out a message to John Legend and Chrissy Teigen after they had the, the unfortunate 
um, circumstance of, of her having a miscarriage. And they say, I'm paraphrasing, but um, we're sending our prayers out to John and Chrissy for the loss of their son. Their son. Now, if I'm trying to understand, okay, so even the biggest abortion provider understands that that's a life. If we find a single cell on Mars, we call that life. But when it comes to the abortion debate, it's a life if the mother wants the child. It's not a life if the mother does not. That is, that is not a, a logically reconcilable position. So it's either we have to agree that life has inherent value, regardless of the circumstances of conception, regardless of the, the location of a particular life, regardless of the gestational age of a particular child, or it has conditional value. And if we say it has conditional value, then everybody better be ready to talk about where their conditions start and end. I'll, I'll put it to you this way. You and I both know that black folk will come back to our people, right? I'm comfortable saying that. We would have a very different position on abortion if the Republicans in every state and a handful of large cities said, we're going to start a campaign to pay black women $15,000 to abort their babies. Very different. We would say, oh, man, they, they're trying to commit genocide. They're trying to kill us all. You wouldn't, have to, you wouldn't have to go that far if they were promoting the proliferation of Planned Parenthood clinics if it were Republicans promoting them. Correct. Somebody would remember what Margaret Sanger thought <laughs> about the proliferation of Negroes right. early in the life of the Planned Parenthood movement. Somebody would recall that and they would paint the Republicans with a genocidal exactly. rush exactly. for encouraging the extirpation of black life. No, I, 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 hear you, I hear you loud and clear, and people don't know the numbers. People don't know. Do you happen to know the numbers? I mean, the numbers are absolutely staggering in terms of the extent of the extirpation of black life, okay, potential life. If, you know, I don't want to get into an argument with people about whether a fertilized egg is a life or not. You just said it is. Some people will say it's not. I don't, I'm not trying to argue that point. Understood. Understood. I'm, I'm just saying that when you do the sums... The actual footprint of African-American humanity within this country is substantially smaller than it otherwise would be mm. in virtue of the uh, vast extent of, uh, of abortion amongst African-American people. And, you know, that's worth remarking, even if at the end of the day we were to decide that, you know, uh, a woman has a right to choose or has a right to choose after a certain number of weeks or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, before a certain number of weeks right, or, or right, whatever. Right. However, we were to resolve that that question, the overarching fact that the health of African-American society, the robustness of it, of the capacity to reproduce our being mm -hmm. into another generation. And of course, it invites the uh, reflection on what are the relational interactions between men and women on a daily basis, in terms of their intimacy, mm -hmm. in terms of their connectivity, in terms of their feelings of responsibility to the next generation, that are then reflected in these abortion statistics. These abortion statistics, regardless of whether or not I thought Roe versus Wade was rightly or wrongly decided, that's a profound reality of the African American condition that ought to occasion deep reflection from our moral leadership about 
where we're going and what has become of, of our of our uh, society. Yeah. So anyway, that's my speech. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I was concerned about my health. My wife was getting on my case, telling me that I should be taking supplements, that I should be doing something besides the sloppy eating that I was doing and the lack of exercise that I was getting to improve my health. I wanted better gut health, more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I hated taking pills and vitamins from all those different bottles. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now that I've been on AG1, I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All of the things. What I do is every morning before breakfast, I take my dose of AG1. Uh, it's become a habit. I've incorporated it into my daily routine. It really makes me feel better, I've noticed. It abets my digestion. Uh, I feel like I have more energy. It's easy to pack in my bag. I take it with me when I travel. I use it without fail every day. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than if you uh, were to buy all the supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Now, Tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com Glenn. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Glenn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Yeah, I, um, I, I mean, yeah. you, you asked some, for some of the stats. Nationally, black women account for about 40, close to 40% of all abortions. Um, about 12% of the female population accounted right. for about 40% of all abortions. Right. And, and in New York City, the, the city with the largest black population, just because it's the largest city, um, in 2016, it was almost exactly equal. The number of live births and the number of induced abortions 
among black women in New York City. So you, if you were a baby at that point, you had a coin flip uh, chance of, of making it into the world. And the, the thing that really aggravates me, and I'm not afraid to use that word, is when I see an organization like Black Lives Matter come on the scene. Right. And all I did, I'm glad I just went to their website. They, they, they told you who they were. It's an LGBT organization that used the high profile deaths of a few black men um, to, to gain sort of cultural and financial currency in this country. Um, I'm sorry, I got to stop you. I got to interrupt you. Okay. I got to do this. I got to do this, Delano. Okay. Because Patrice Cullors and the others are LGBT, that is to say queer women, mm -hmm. you just called Black Lives Matter, which is a loose affiliation of, you know, a lot of different uh, groups across the country and LGBT organizations. Correct. That's not fair. That's not fair. Well, um, if I didn't say this, I meant to say Trojan Horse Organization, but I I'll leave that part <laughs> out for, for right now. But, but, but it's true. I mean, if you go to their 13 original principles, they, they, didn't, they didn't use the words police or violence a single time. I've done the word search multiple times. They, they said that they're queer affirming, trans affirming, woman affirming, and explicitly against the nuclear family. So they are not concerned with black lives, but the only reason I bring them up is because these are the same people that say that uh, white conservatives want, or, you know, have a, a, a white supremacy agenda and you know, want to keep black people down and in chains. But, but if, if you are a black baby in utero in 2016 in the South Bronx, you would be much better off having your mother speak to a white Christian conservative woman, woman outside of Planned Parenthood than a BLM activist. Your chances of living and being born into this world will be much higher if your mother received counsel from the first woman and not the second. So, I mean, the, the abortion statistics should make um, any person just take a step back. The black population has been at about, in this country has been at between 11 and 13% for over 50 years. And, and, and that's at the beginning of life. We didn't even get to the, the fact that um, among young black men, 15 to 24 years old, among those who pass away, obviously tragically, half of those die by, via homicide. So we're getting squeezed on both ends. And I, I, my last year working for DC government, I worked in the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. I was on the calls every morning at 8.30, hearing about every contact shooting in the city. Um, and consistently, it was always young black male, young black male, young black male. So Yes, all of these things speak to the condition of black family life. Um, the, the, the disappearance of marriage, particularly as it relates in, uh, with respect to low-income neighborhoods, um, the disproportionate abortion rate. Glenn, don't you find it odd that Planned Parenthood and the issue of abortion is probably the only one where an organization with a, with a checkered racial past, um, and particularly a, a, a checkered racial past as it relates to its founder, and a disproportionate impact on, on, on black bodies and black lives. This is one of the only issues in which the left doesn't stand up and say, hey, there's a problem here. And I'm not sure, and I'm, I'm trying not to be cynical, but at a certain point, there was a shift in the abortion rhetoric because I wasn't around in the 1970s, but just from what I read and what I see, abortion was, I think, generally framed as, a, as, a, as an issue for, for middle-class white women. If you want to get a job in the Atlantic or in some newsroom, and a baby might have gotten in the way, you, you, you were the face of that. 
now all of a sudden every black politician and every politician on the left is saying if Roe is struck down, this will have a disproportionate impact on, on poor black women, which means they think it is a, a, a more fitting fate for a child to be killed in utero than to be born to a poor black woman. And my question to them is, how many black people do you think would be in this country if we took that position from 1865 until now? Uh they think that the exigencies of life for poor black women who find themselves pregnant in terms of their economic and social situation uh, would uh, cause greater hardship for those women to be forced to bring the pregnancies to term than for them to have the option of terminating the pregnancy. That's another way of phrasing it. Uh, I'm not advocating for them. I'm just trying to be fair to them. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, I, I mean, I got to tell you an anecdote. This is just back, back to my full disclosure thing. So my granddaughter, Faith, wonderful young woman, uh, her mom is the child of mine who is the diversity person at NARAL. And Faith is an undergraduate at the University of Illinois Urbana. Hmm. And at our last family reunion, she comes up to me and she says, Poppy, because uh, the uh decision in the uh case overturning Roe had just come down. Uh where do you stand? Mm. And I said, I, I said, look, I gotta be honest with you, I think Roe was wrongly decided. I don't I think they invented a right in the Constitution that's not there and the court gets to decide about stuff like that and I don't have a problem with them. They didn't decide the issue. They turned it back to the states. The states can decide it and you know if you you know go to your state and, and argue for your side. And I said, you know, viability, you're killing the person. I mean, you can't kill the baby after it's born because it's inconvenient. Well, how, how can you kill it just before it's born? So, you know, on the other hand, morning after, am I going around chasing after women who have, you know, terminated the gestation before the thing is even, you know, I saw it, you know, it's a question of when you're going to draw the line and whatever. That's what I said. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking you to agree with mm -hmm. that. I'm just saying that was, I said, here's what she said. She said, those people who want to take away my right to determine to uh, terminate this pregnancy don't respect my uh, personhood as as a human being. They 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 want to make me into uh, force me into, you know, uh, a role that uh, I should be able to choose about it one way or the other. It's a fundamental right to me. It's a fundamental right, and a lot of people are going to say that. And I think we're back to square one in this conversation, which is on the one hand. <laughs> Uh, people are, many women, many black women are in the same uh, posture as my granddaughter. And it's a fundamental right. I should get to decide that. Okay, within limits, all right, then we could talk about what the limits are, but basically I should get to decide that versus um, the, the moral imperative of uh, affirming life and making the law support that. And I'm, I, I'm yeah. gonna end my soliloquy now because I don't have a conclusion but I just wanted to give voice to these counter, counter themes. And, and, and I know that position is out there. Um, and I mean, I, you, you gave, you know, certain disclosures and so I'll, I'll when they roll, I mean, I, I made certain decisions at a different period of my life, certainly well before I was married, where, I mean, I, I didn't 
live by the things that I profess right now. I'll, I'll just say it that way. Um, and it, it's not lost on me. I, I couldn't, again, as a Christian, I couldn't just paper over that and say, oh, that was nothing. It was just a clump of cells. No, no, it wasn't. I had to acknowledge that. That's a sin that I had to repent for. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't, my decisions do not change reality. And as I said, um, when, when a person hears that a pregnant woman has been assaulted and she tragically loses her baby, they, they want some justice for, for that child. They don't just say, oh, well, the clump of cells went away, no different than some dead skin that's sloughing off the, the back of your hand. It's like, yeah. no, we, we acknowledge it. So um, I, I, un, I understand that position, but here, here is the larger critique, Len. Um, and this is both one on a sort of macro level and micro level, particularly within the black community. We have done our young people, particularly our young women, such a disservice. And when I say we, I just mean the culture where they think um, that anything that is exclusive to men, they want access to. If some group of second waivers hears that there's an all men's bowling alley in Sheboygan, they're going to be there and they're going to protest. And they said, women need to have access to this. But the one thing, and this is not a minor thing, that only women can do, right? Bear and bring forth life. They said, that's not particularly important. It's much more important for me to pursue whatever interests the men are doing. I, and, and I think this, this goes back to, I think, where we started. And certainly, you know, my, 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 the, the, one of the issues that I cover so, off, so much around marriage and family formation and fatherhood, I, I wish we did a better job of talking to our young people um, about the beauty and the benefit of, of family. And we laid out sort of a script. I know, you know, we, Ian Rowe is a friend of both of ours. We, you know, he talks about the success sequence, right? It's about doing things in a particular order because the data, the data is clear. The vast majority of abortions um, in this country are from unmarried women. So if, if our marriage rates look like those of South Korea, our abortion rates may look the same too, right? And so that, that would naturally drive down the abortion rate. You, you just made reference to Ian Rowe, who's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and whose book, Agency, with a subtitle, has just been published in which he advocates for a formula for success of everybody, including black folk, but that he calls the free mm -hmm. family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And if you get those right, the success sequence is marrying, having a full-time job before you have a kid, you're unlikely to be poor. Correct. That's what you were referring to. Correct, correct. Yeah, so um, I, I, got, I want to ask you one more question sure. about abortion. Sure. Because, again, I got family. This one is my wife. And every time this issue comes up, she says, yeah, 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 right to life from conception to birth. And as soon as the kid is here, they ain't interested in life no more. So, you know, in other words, health care for the baby, food for the baby. The mother is poor. You don't want the government being on, on welfare. You don't like welfare. You're not providing benefits. There's no housing subsidy. There's no uh, cash grant. They're, you know, they're living in poverty and whatnot. This woman is struggling to keep this baby with baby formula and so forth, and she doesn't have any place to go and any shelter and any place to support. So how come 
all of the pro-life people are gung-ho about people having babies, but not so if they're Republican, especially interested in having uh, the help provided to these women so they can take care of the babies. I've heard that question. I think um, it sort of gets down to a matter of worldview, right? I, I don't start from the position that it's the government's ultimate responsibility to take care of a pregnant woman and her child. I start from the position that is that that child's father's responsibility to take care of that woman and that child. So we're already starting at two different places and diverging. Now, if he's not there, I, be, I believe in a, in a social safety net. But when you're on your third generation using the safety net, it's clear that it's turned into a spider's web because you and your family can't get out of it, out of its grip. So I, I don't take the position that um, enlarging the welfare state um, is to the net benefit of American families. And, and in fact, what I would argue is that we have created a, a certain sense of bureaucratic patriarchy where unmarried mothers, elected officials, and unelected bureaucrats uh, have a symbiotic relationship where all three need one another. And I would like to pull women out of that. One, because I, I think the incentive structures are all wrong. You, you can't, and particularly, you know, this goes back between, you know, in the race conversation, people were always talking about, uh, you know, wealth inequality. You, you're not going to build wealth if your spouse is the federal government. That's not happening. So I, I'm big on responsibility, right? I, I, I studied as, a, as an engineer, as an undergrad. And one of the few things I still remember from taking physics is the law of conservation of energy. Basically says, once created, energy cannot be destroyed to sort of pass, you know, from one form to the other. And I think in, 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 in sort of the social sphere, there's a, there's a law of what I call the law of dissipating responsibility. That once responsibility is created, it can't be destroyed. It's just passed from one entity to the next. And when that responsibility leaves the father and moves to an unelected bureaucrat that the, the, the trend lines are not pointing in the right direction because they, they can't possibly care for you and your child when they have, depending on what city it is, a couple hundred other kids on their docket. So I, I understand the, the, the desire for a larger sort of welfare state. And there are a number of Republicans who have put forth positions to try to strengthen families. Um, you know, I think Senator Rubio, Senator Romney both have plans. Some of them involve expanding, you know, maternal leave. Um, uh, some of them involve, you know, cash stipends uh, for or child tax credits um, for, for families that have children. And I'm not sort of facially opposed to those things per se. I just believe in and before we get to the policy, let's mark out the definitions right? Let's, let's get the incentives correct. Let's get the interests correct. And one of my frustrations, even and this is a frustration for the conservative right, is as I was hearing people talking about post-Roe America, um, they, some people started to sound like, like liberals. You know, the, the, the classic line is a, doc, um, a hospital room is too small for a woman, her, her doctor in the federal government. But judging by what I was hearing, it was too small for the father as well, because his name never... His, his position never came up in the discussion. And, and I'm a big believer, Glenn, both in this area 
in the area of, of um, crime and punishment, of getting more comfortable asking the question, where is the father? I know some people don't want to hear that, but the responsibilities have to be put back in their right place because um, as, a, as a Christian, I, I believe, you know, when the Bible talks, describes the church as, as the body of Christ, but here in, in civil society, we have a body politic. It is grossly deformed. The, 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 the welfare state, the, the bureaucracy is way too big, and, and there has been a corresponding uh, atrophying of civil, civil and civic institutions as well as the family. And I don't want to live in a, in a country and I don't want to pass on the world to my, to my kids where the vast majority of kids feel as if it's the government's role to support them. The vision that okay. I have for the future is one in which husbands and wives are raising their children together in, in loving, low-conflict homes. I know it's not, that's my ideal and that's, that's what I'm always pushing towards. More power to you, but I'm going to do the devil's advocate thing here again. Okay. And it's basically built around the idea that I have a fabric and there's a loose thread, and I start pulling. The more I pull, the more it unravels. The next thing you know, I got a long spool of thread. I can pull on the loose thread and unravel the fabric but I can push and push and push all I want to on that thread and I'm not going to reweave that fabric again. It's a metaphor meant to represent the effects of modernity. You, you heard about it. Mm -hmm. You've already heard about post-modernity. Mm -hmm. You know about secularism. You know about the decline of faith. You, you know about how institutions change. I mean, nobody was talking about gay rights 50 years ago. They're talking about it now. And they talk about uh, transgender and all the rest, and they weren't talking about it before. And the world is a fast-moving place, and systems of belief change over time. You some utopian. I'm just giving the devil's advocate here. <laughs> what that we could simply wish it so, and then the values would be different from what they are. But the forces, and you mentioned social media, that's a very important one, mm -hmm. that are at work amongst us now are extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. So what I want to know is whether you're not just kind of spitting into the wind, whether, whether you're not kind of like crying out in the wilderness against your fate, and your fate is that the world of our forefathers and mothers the, the uh, comfortable uh, world of, of faith and order is gone forever. It's not coming back. 70% uh, of black babies born to a woman without a husband. Uh, everything in the culture, every single thing pushing against the position that you just got through mm -hmm. articulating with very, very few exceptions. Talk about popular culture amongst African-Americans. I remind you of Megan D. Stallion, mm. okay, and company. Uh, look at Hollywood. Uh, look at what's on television. 
look at the politics of it. Mm. So, so I, I don't understand how we're going to get from where you are, where we are to where you want to be. So here's, here's how I would respond to that, right? One, sometimes the battles that are most worth fighting are the ones you believe that you can't win. Um, I'm, I just, I don't even think that we fought the battle because you, to, to your point, no, it, it'd be different if I saw 15, 20 years of culture trying to push in a direction that I'm advocating and things not changing. We haven't done that. In fact, what we've gotten from the black leadership class is the marshalling of resources, right? Of priorities, of righteous indignation, of financial capital, of social capital, all for the purpose of getting white people straight. Because the aristocracy seems to think that the two biggest problems facing black America are income inequality and systemic racism. And that's why their two primary solutions are bigger government and better white people. You can't tell me that we can't, right? You better white people, <laughs> right? That actually wishing for better white people turns out not to be a political program. <laughs> there we go. So, so, so I would argue, Glenn, that they are the utopians. I, I'm, I'm a person that's operating within the framework of, of natural, social, and moral order. Every child has a mom and a dad, and you could go through every birth certificate in this country since the beginning, or, or in any country since the beginning of time. None of them say John Q. Government. So I'm, I'm not speaking to utopia. All I'm saying is that the, the man and the woman who come together to make a child have obligations to that child. And I know we live in a point in time um, where people don't talk about duty and obligations. It's all about what makes me happy at a particular time. But again, we, we have seen since 2020, since George Floyd was killed on the streets of Minneapolis, a concerted effort in every part of our society to marshal our resources and righteous indignation towards the, the, the project of expressing the value of black lives. And what I'm saying is the track work is there. We, we saw during the, the COVID-19 pandemic, politicians get very comfortable making moral arguments for why people should take certain types of, of, of medical interventions and saying, if you don't do this, you're going to kill both your, your child and your mother. And they had no problem saying that. So what I'm saying is the track is there. We just need new trains. And those trains should sound like if, if, if you abandon your responsibilities to your, to your children, they're going to have a difficult life. It sounds like you should, you should think about the future that you want. It's, it sounds like LeBron James in an ad campaign with the NBA Foundation, and instead of talking about yeah, BLM and go vote, because that's, that's one of the few things that Democrats are comfortable asking black people to do is to vote. It sounds like him saying, um, listen to me, guys. Every king needs a queen. I can tell you that because I'm LeBron James and I speak from experience. And then he pans over and he sees his wife, Savannah, and their three children, right? It just sounds like using um, the instruments that are already there within our cultural infrastructure to promote a different message. That was a hypothetical LeBron. Correct. Uh, a hypo commercial. Correct. Yeah. A hypothetical. But, but, but what I'm saying is the, the, 
it, part of this has to do with our thinking on these issues. And I think the utopians are the ones who think that, okay, if we just, it, it's, I know you've covered, you and John have covered this issue, right, around school choice. Um, I live in D.C. with the, the only federally funded voucher program in the country. And, and the argument is always spend more on, on education, spend more. But spending has gone up 217% in real dollars since 1971, right? It, it's, it's, not, it's not the money. It's how we think about these issues. And the people who think, whether they are prison abolitionists, whether they are, um, you know, big government socialists, who think that um, more resources will solve moral problems, they are the ones who are living in a place that literally does not exist, i.e. utopia. Um, I'm just trying to cut with the grain. I'm just trying to go with, with the direction the tides are taking me. Um, but some people just seem to prefer swimming in choppy waters. So um, that's, that's, I think that, that, that's what attention is. All I'm saying is let's at least give it a chance, right? And, and the crux of my argument is if every single white person today in this country went back to their European ancestral homeland, or they followed Elon Musk on Explorer One to the moon. Every <laughs> single problem in the black community that we have today would be facing us tomorrow. Now, some of these guys would be out of a job because without any, you know, guilty white folks to 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 wrangle, the people with three names, as you call them, would have to find something else to do. But in our communities, it would still be some of the same issues. The 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 politicians. Mm -hmm. Pundits, professors, performers, and, and preachers. preachers. I, I'm gonna. I've committed that one to memory. Listen, Delano, I'd like to have you back. We're at the end sure. of the hour. I'd like to have you back. I, I want to talk about the cops. Okay. And I want to talk about the schools. Mm. You're in the DeVos Center. That's uh, the family of Betsy DeVos, not her name, uh, at the Heritage Foundation uh, Life, uh, Religion, and Family. And uh, I think we'd have a lot more to talk about. Absolutely. So let's circle back uh, in a bit and carry on the conversation. But cool. further, but Delano Squires has been my guest here uh, this hour at the Glenn Show, and I I really appreciate you giving me the time and appreciate. You know, we don't hear in the mainstream media voices such as Delano Squires, and we particularly don't hear black voices to that effect. So I'm very proud. I'm proud to be affiliated with the Woodson Center where I donate 10% of the net proceeds from the Glenn Show to support that work. And I'm proud to be a colleague of Delano Squires, even though I have to play the devil's advocate, bro. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all good. I, I appreciate you, Glenn. And th thank you for having me on. It, it truly was an honor when I told my wife we were having this conversation. She said, congrats. I know you've wanted to do this for a long time. And I said, yes, I have. She even wrote me a note up on, our, on my whiteboard. So, so thank you. I appreciate it. We'll talk again, Delano. Take care. All right. Sounds good.